1: podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, August 13th. It's been such a pleasure for our Cracked Rackets team to get to cover this week's Top Seed Open, an inaugural WTA International event hosted by our friends at the Top Seed Tennis Club in Lexington, Kentucky. I know I speak for all of us tennis fans when I say it's just so great to see our favorite tennis players back on court competing against one another, to see tour play resume. It's it's so encouraging. It provides a sense of normalcy, right, which is something all of us need after five plus months dealing with this global pandemic. And it's just been such a pleasure to get to watch all of the action. It's so clear these players have put in the intense labor you need to over these past five months to be able to return to competition and expect your level of play to be anything close to decent, anything close to where you left off. Now, of course, some of the tennis has been a little bit ugly at times, but, you know, the level of competition, the way these players are competing. It's been so encouraging, and it's been so great for me personally to get to be on the call for these matches with our friends over at the Tennis One app. For those of you who want to tune in to all of the action, come join us on CrowdView Live. I, you know, Obviously, we are a Tennis Channel Podcast Network podcast, and so I always will support our friends at the Tennis Channel. But I will say for those of you who may not have Tennis Channel Download the Tennis One app. You can watch these matches for free and you can join us on Crowdview Live. It hasn't just been me. So many fantastic guests have joined me in the booth. You know, New York Empire coach Luke Jensen, uh, Philadelphia Freedoms coach Craig Carden, Ryan Harrison, Donna Vekic, Mark Lucero. It's been, you know, Andrew Krasny. It's been such a blast because not only do we get to enjoy some outstanding tennis, but the conversations we're having. It's not your typical viewing experience to me. It reminds Reminds me of when I'm watching matches with my friends. Where, of course, we're talking about the match we're seeing in front of us, but we're also talking about the larger issues, you know, confronting tennis. We're talking about the bigger picture that this match is taking place within. Of course, when you have coaches like Luke Jensen, Craig Cardin, Mark Lucero, even you know, players' perspective, Ryan Harrison, uh, Ryan Harrison, and we had Nicole Melishar as well. Uh, you know, to get to pick their brains, some of the finest tennis minds out there to listen to them talk about the emotions these players are dealing with breakdown the tactics we're seeing in play it's almost like a live film study and so it's been such a blast to get to take part in we've got some really cool guests planned for the weekend so again if you haven't go download the tennis one app come join us on crowdview live even if you don't want to pop up on video, or you know, at, you know, actually, you know, say have your voice be included. You can type in questions as well if that's not something you're comfortable with. So just come be a part of the conversation. Come be a part of the fun. It's always such a blast, and you know, I want to see your smiling faces. I want to see our Cracked Rackets listeners. I want to interact with you even more than we do now. So please feel free to join us. And again, we will be live on the Tennis One app throughout the duration of this event. We were, of course, supposed to be on site covering this, getting the chance to interview some of these players. That is not going to be happening, unfortunately. Uh, again, I will get into the details of that story in our GSP Patreon-only mailbag podcast. Don't want to get into that right now. Uh, but still, it's been such a pleasure. Despite that you know, setback, it's been so great to get to watch all of these matches, to get to cover it up close. So hopefully all of you will want to come join me. And of course, we've got a great field still set for this weekend's action as we head into you know back half of the round of 16 today, and then quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. There's also some outstanding tennis going on in Prague right now, two WTA events. It gets you thinking, if the WTA is able to pull off two events, ATP, what were we doing? Why weren't we able to have, you know, why wasn't the ATP able to pull off these sorts of events clearly in the fashion that the WTA is? And we've been so fortunate that, you know, I know the testing procedures on site. We were tested on site. We just now aren't allowed to go on site, even though we all tested negative. But they are very rigorous, very detailed in how they are, you know, ensuring the safety and health guidelines are being followed for everyone on site in Lexington. I imagine the same is happening in Prague, though I will say we talked to Donna Vekic about the scenarios, the guidelines in Palermo and She was, needless to say, surprised at how loose they were, how, you know, it was really an honor system in Palermo. It was a really interesting detail, and again, I want to talk about that in depth, some of the takeaways from these matches. Unfortunately, I am recording this Thursday morning before play begins, and i got to do some stuff to prepare, of course, for Venus Serena 31, right? I want to be on my game. I want to have these details ready, Uh, so a little bit of research. I need to keep today's intro, outro on the shorter side, so I'm going to save that breakdown for tomorrow. Gonna watch some self, myself, some prog action tonight, so I can give you guys my full thoughts. Uh, but of course, if you want to hear again my thoughts on as we build up to the new uh, to the three week bubble in New York, go listen to the Great Shot podcast I did with Cast Tennis Academy founder, with the former University of Michigan All American pro tennis coach Dave Cass. Uh, it's a really great conversation. We get into not only you know thoughts on the safety and health guidelines, the feasibility of New York happening, but also we preview what we think the play is going to look like as well and give some names that we think players, uh, fans should be looking out for as play resumes. Uh, but of course, we have a fantastic podcast for you today as it is a Thursday. And on a Thursday, you know what that means. It's getting to the point with our friends from Aerobar, Bar, Mark Aerosmith joining me today on this getting to the point to talk about, you know, the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern tennis game but also to talk uh, with a fantastic guest, and I will just give a little bit of background, and then again, I want to keep this on the shorter side, although we're already six minutes in, Um, but you know, I I, uh, obviously went to the University of Michigan, my coach growing up also played there, a guy by the name of Ed Nagel, a guy who is a very significant influence in my life, probably more so than he should be, Um, but you know, he played on, at the University of Michigan on the 1987-1988 teams after tra- transferring over from Pepperdine. That's in irrelevant detail, only to say, though, that the team he played on his senior year, 1988, that team featured Dan Goldberg, a future NCAA singles finalist that featured guys like John Morris, who had an incredible college career as well. Ed had an incredible college career it also featured an immensely talented freshman by the name of Malavia Washington, and for those of you who know about Mal Washington, 1996 Wimbledon finalist career high of number 11 in the ATP singles rankings, I mean, it's awesome to say that Mal Washington, uh, of course, was Ed's doubles partner, and so I grew up on stories of Ed and Mal. The, the amount of times I had to hear about you know, how good they were, and I loved it. I absorbed it, and I don't know if you guys know this, I love talking tennis, and so this is really where it's... It started. Nevertheless, it is to say today joining us on the podcast is Mal Washington, and so this is an interview I am just so excited to uh, share with you listeners. I will say the audio not as great as I would like. We had a couple technical difficulties, but still the content of this interview too good to pass up. So I want to get to that t- conversation with Mal Washington. Of course, before we do that, I have to let you know that these podcasts are made possible by our friends here at Crack Rackets, and of course course you know all about our friends at Aerobar providing the only tennis specific energy bar in the business more potassium than a banana. Just good ingredients you can trust. And again We all need that energy boost out on the court. Aerobar going to make sure you have the nutrition you need to succeed. Go to aerobar.com. Use our promo code CRACKED15. You'll get 15% off your order. Uh, Of course, if you need to update your gear, I will tell you, go to our friends at midwestsports.com. They've got everything you could need and more. Every brand available and, of course, their staff intimately familiar with each and every piece of equipment and can help you find that perfect piece of clothing, perfect racket, perfect pair of shoes that is sure to get the most out of your tennis game midwestsports.com the promo code is cr15 now with that being said i am so excited for all of you listeners to hear this so let's get to my conversation and i should say our conversation with former wimbledon finalist atp number 11 university of michigan all-american malavia washington him as a former All-American for my beloved University of Michigan Wolverines men's tennis team of course he reached a career high of number 11 in the ATP singles rankings and of course was a finalist at the 1996 Wimbledon Malavia Washington Mal welcome to the show how are you doing tonight
2: I am living the dream every day, Alex. How
1: are you? I'm doing well. I'm most importantly hoping I got it right. It is Malavia, right? I feel like this will be a good public service announcement for all of the fans. No, that is, that's a good service announcement right there.
2: You said it properly. Most people do not say you say it properly. And I was just going to call you out on the air if you were butchered it. Most people asked me beforehand. Yes. Did I say it right or how do I say it? You, you obviously felt comfortable enough was
3: saying it that he didn't even have to ask me beforehand. The good thing now is that he asked me and I said, I only not the I went 25 years,
2: how would I know? <laughs> said, so, so you only come in now. That's I said. I, can, I can have a safe way. I go now. You know, if everyone just took the safe route and just went now, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. But Sometimes, you know, people look at the spelling and they get confident, overconfident in fact, and then they butcher. I've literally heard Fifteen different pronunciations of my name over the years, and people still get wrong. For years,
1: I about now. <laughs> well, again, I, the reason I went in confident—I'm not going to lie—I went to my sources, and a, a, two friends of yours confirmed Malavia. One of them, Andrew Krasny, I'm sure you know. The other name I'm not going to reveal yet, as that person has been my source for a lot of the material I am working today, but. As our Cracked fans know, uh, as someone who also attended the University of Michigan, I always enjoyed going to club tennis practice, practicing right next to that beautiful Malavia Washington All-American banner. And, you know, again, such a prolific tennis career for you. There are so many different parts of your career we could talk about. Let's start at the beginning. Someone who, you know, how does Malavia Washington get into the game? And I know your brothers also played the sport at a high level. Was that something that influenced your decision?
2: Well, no, actually it wasn't because it was my dad who started me. It was me and my older sister started at the uh, same time I was five years old. She was nine years old, and it was just a, you know, it was something for us to do. You know, my dad played as an amateur. He wasn't really competitive. played a couple of city tournaments in Flint, Michigan, and he got us started, and it was just kind of a thing we did. I mean, in our family, it was going to school, going to church, eating, sleeping, and you played tennis. I mean, those are like the five things we did in our family. And then after, after me and my sister got started, I actually had you know, two other sisters who played and one brother who played. And there were, I guess, four of us who actually played on the pro tour. Um, brother played on the pro tour back in the 90s, for a period of time, and then my older sister back in the 80s, and then my sister, Mishona, um, other than me, you know, I had the most success of anyone in the family, and uh, she played in the 2000s. She got up to 50 in the world. So
1: it was, it was a tennis family, and it was just what we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- that certainly helps foster, I'm sure, the competitive atmosphere. Are you, you, know, you playing against your siblings growing up? You, I know it's, again, something for you to do, but how fierce does that competition get? I know it still gets nasty when my brothers and I take the court. It
2: was pretty competitive with, uh, with, I think, my older sister because we started playing together at the, to- at the same time, and uh, she and I practiced a ton over the years. And, it- and it's funny because in my family, we- we have- everyone has bragging rights for something. You know, years ago, there was this tournament that was called the Rolex International in Wa- Port Washington, New York, and my little sister was the only one in the family who won that tournament. You know, so she had bragging rights there. And what's really funny is, and they give me grief about this now, the Flint Junior Open in Flint, Michigan, everyone in my family won that tournament at least one time except me. <laughs> and how, how that ever happened, I, I have no idea, but I never won the Flint Junior Open. But uh, but then I, I just pull rank on all of them, and then I just say Wimbledon, and then that kind of shuts the debate down a little bit. <laughs>
1: No, that will certainly work. That will do the job. And, you know, as someone from Michigan, and again, this is going to get closer and closer, you you think about that time, I feel like, People sleep on how talented uh, the pool of Southeast Michigan and just Michigan talent tennis-wise in general. Names such as you know yourself, obviously Aaron Crickstein, a little bit older than you, Todd Martin, I think a few years younger than you know. You have guys like Ed Nagel, an All-American at Michigan, your future doubles partner. By the way, my tennis coach growing up. There's the other person who I've gotten all of my information from. But can you speak about what it was like to again play in that environment? Because I don't think you ever went off to an academy, if memory serves me correct
2: well um it was it was great playing in that environment um and he wasn't from southeast michigan but he was from kind of western michigan um you know we, if we're talking about Michigan we're got to throw out a guy like murphy jensen yeah. and luke jensen as well um but playing all of those guys you know you just mentioned todd martin and i grew playing uh, murphy jensen a ton i've never actually played aaron christine and junior tennis and, uh, you know, playing doubles with, with Ed Nagel at University of Michigan, uh, he and I were All-American my freshman year. He was he just uh, one of the great dudes uh, to this day. I, I consider him just a great dude. But it, it was very competitive, and, and I think we always pushed each other. And even on the women's side, you have like a
1: Garrett Cunningham or – uh, Meredith McGrath or Amy um, Frazier. Amy
2: Frazier. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So all of those players, you know, you're kind of looking at them and they're, they're having success, especially when they go on and have success at the national level. And, you know, maybe in Kirkstein's example, you know, he was that first person to start having a lot of success at the pro level. But you see that, okay? And so, uh, you know, that is one of the things that, that kind of always motivated me is looking at those my peers who, who maybe a year or two older and watching the success that they're having because that is what I wanted and so certainly when I was in, uh, in college watching some of the, the top Americans you know no, notably Sampras, Agassi, you know Curry or Chang having so much success you know at 16 17 18 years old 19 years old and I'm in college that really drove me but uh, to, to correct one thing you said, I did have uh, one semester at an academy at Voltaire's actually um, in the second semester of my junior year in high school and so you know a lot of really good players came out of there and that was when I was there I was there and trained a lot with, with another former Michigan player, Victor Amaya, uh, my senior year of high school, and then uh, trained a lot with Murphy Jensen, my senior year.
1: No, that, that's so awesome to hear. I would say, and, you know, as a fellow Michigander, you can argue this as well, Western Michigan's kind of just Northern Indiana. Like, yeah, it's Michigan, <laughs> but it's not really Michigan. And so, you know, it's a whole separate part of the state. That being said, Toledo should be part of Michigan. But that's a conversation for another time. Uh, yeah, you, you talk about, again, that environment and your peers and them pushing you. I have the 1987 Kalamazoo draw in front of me, and you look at the name seated here, you know, Jim Currier, number two to Dave Wheaton, number three, Michael Chang, six, uh, Pete Sampras, seven, Jeff Tarango, nine, and you know, as you mentioned yourself, Martin Blackman, Al Parker, arguably the greatest American junior male in history. Uh, you know, what was it like for you growing up in that peer group, knowing you know, obviously you will go on to have plenty of success, but being around a group of players with clear pro potential.
2: Well, you mentioned Al Parker, and he was the gold standard, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The one junior national title I won, the one gold ball I have, was 12 and under Winston-Salem, North Carolina doubles (laughs) with Al Parker. And that was the year he won the national title in singles and doubles in all uh, all four national tournaments. And um, so he was the standard that everyone kind of you know tried to be. But you mentioned those other guys as well. We were all jockey in four position, and we were kind of doing our own thing. And some of those guys went off to militaries, and I did four semesters. And then I came back to Michigan. And and some of us, you know, like you mentioned, Triangle and Martin Blackman, we went the college route. Both of those guys went to Stanford. I went to University of Michigan. But we all, I think, aspire to get to that next level. And then when you see Michael Chang break out and win Roland Garros in 1989 and even the year before that, Agassiz, you know, however old he was, he was a teenager, but he reaches like the semifinals finals of, of Roland Garros and then Sampras breaks out and wins the U.S. Open at 19 years old in 1990. I mean, that really kind of drove, you know, that second tier. I mean, I, I kind of put, you know, Agassi, Chang, Courier, Sampras in, in kind of that upper tier because those are the Grand Slam winners. You know, but then you know, right behind them, it was like me and Crickstein and David Whedon and Todd Martin, a group of guys who were really inspired by those guys because every player wants to achieve that level. But it just goes to show how special those players were. You know that they were able to just win, start winning major after major after major, and stay up there for so long.
1: And then some of them, you know, were never really able to take that next step and win one. Yeah, no, I mean, you can throw another name in there right in Jay Berger. There were so many good names in that time span for American tennis. There were just so many people. If I have to tell you how many times I heard Ed be like, Frisky, I played Paul Harhus in the 1988 quarterfinals. I was up a set. And it's like, and then I see Harhu's because Harhu's had match points on Connors or something like that. I don't remember. I've heard this again. It's it's a story that's near and dear to my heart, and you know I'll get into my Ed impression more a little bit later. But for you, wait, wait,
2: you said
1: you said that was a story that Nagel told. Oh, every time, just every day.
2: You know, it was Nagel was uh, he was a, uh, a great talent. I actually loved playing uh, playing uh, doubles with him. And You're probably referring to. That match at the 1991 U.S. Open, where Connors was playing high Haru's, yep. and uh, when Connors went on that run to the semifinal,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, that was the year he played Paul and beat Paul, and then beat you know whoever else. He actually beat Crickstein in the quarterfinal mm-hmm. um, at that U.S. Open. So that, that was a great run. But you know, it was uh, it was it was great playing doubles and being a teammate of Ed because he was one of those hard nosed guys train I love to train and uh, we just played played a ton of uh, ton of practice together and you know I just loved uh, and, I, and I can't really stand on air, because some of the, some of the signals and the, the, the word play that we would have during devil and was, was kind of crazy and a little vulgar but
1: it worked for us. <laughs> well again that's the sort of signaling I grew up on. 11 p.m. Ricks, and that meant, oh, okay, get this match done quickly because we're going out tonight. You know, that's that's <laughs> the sort of signaling you're giving to one another. No, certainly. And, you know, that gets to, you know, you head over to the University of Michigan, one of the highly touted recruits in a generation of recruits that clearly go on to have pro success. And, I've talked to Ed about this. Again, this, is, this pod is just a joy for me. Hopefully our listeners can hear that. Uh, and he talks about you as a freshman, and he goes, you know, you look at that team. It's Ed, it, who was an All-American, Dan Goldberg, NCAA finalist, John Morris, incredible player as well. And yet he says, and then Mal walked on campus, and whether it was Mal's legs, just what you could do physically compared to everyone else, it was always astounding to him. And so for you to make that decision when clearly you had the talent. You see your peers doing well on the Pro Tour as well. Why was college, why was the University of Michigan the choice for you?
2: Well, I was talented as a junior, but I was not talented enough to take it to the next level at 18 years old. Um, I, they, I did not even consider going to the Pro Tour right after high school. I was not going to follow in Shane Currier, uh, Agassi Sanford's footsteps because I wasn't ready. You have an opportunity to go to the University of Michigan on a full tennis scholarship. You know, it, and it was it was an hour from my home where I grew up. It was an hour from um, you know, East Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I spent my senior year working with Victor Abaya. Obviously, you know, University of Michigan in tennis in the Big Ten was what the place you go. And you know, certainly getting there and being sold on the University of Michigan by Brian Eisner. And Mark Mace, uh, the assistant coach, was there at the time. Uh, it, there were just too many positives to even consider, um, you know, really going anywhere or, or turning pro. So he offered me that opportunity to go there. And honestly, you know, in my in my career, my tennis career, that was the first big major uh, decision that I made which put me on, which continued me uh, on a really good trajectory.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you talk again, you mentioned some of the names already in college tennis to expand to that, you know, you have people, uh, who is the team at Pepperdine, oh, he would get mad that I'm forgetting this right now, Robbie Weiss and his partner oh, as well, yeah, and uh, uh, who did he play, Jerome Jones, I want to say, it was Weiss and Jones, that was the duo, and you know, people like that, people like Buffaro. you can go on and on and on. How did college tennis help you develop as and you know get you prepared for the pros? Particularly, I know you know your second year you sort of take off, but that first year I think you're playing three singles behind Dan and Ed, which in retrospect is just ridiculous.
2: You no, know, it was the right move. I, absolutely, I, I didn't need to play one or two because they were actually better than me my freshman year. Um, but what 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 college tennis did and it was interesting because I went into the University of Michigan with a mindset that I, I definitely wanted to play pro tennis, and I had a two-year mindset. Um, you never know if it's going to work out that way, but going in, I really wanted to uh, play and felt like I could play two years at Michigan, and I might have an opportunity to see where my game was. But competing against older players, better players, really prepared me, I think, mentally, emotionally, physically, I got I got stronger, You know, I got bigger, and it, and it literally just helped me, you know hone my skills, and then you know, I'd go out you know, after my freshman year and after my sophomore year, I'd go out on tour, i play a satellite, i play some challengers, and really try to test your game against other players. And I got beat up uh, in satellites and challengers after my freshman year, and even then, there was, no, there was no question. I was not going to turn pro, but something happened kind of at the beginning of my, my sophomore year where I, I just really... I uh, really took a jump. I won the won the first national title um, that fall. I think it was at, at University of Georgia in Athens, and then I you know I won the indoor nationals later you know that season. And I, and I just really had a really big improvement. You know, my serve got bigger. I just got a lot more confidence. And then that summer after my sophomore year, you know, I won a challenge. I won a fifty thousand dollar challenger, and and I beat a couple of guys. You know. Inside the at least one or two guys inside the top 100, it and was, it was little things like that that made me say, okay, maybe now now is the time to, to go. So I just got so much better. I, mean, I give a lot of credit to to you know, the guys I practiced with, my teammates, and certainly my coaches who were there who you know just I guess really pushed me. Um, and you put all of that together, it put me in a real good position to uh, to make a decision you know, that summer 1989 on not going back to, to Michigan. I mean, and I, I, one thing I still kind of feel bad about is kind of, I kind of jacked Coates um, because he was expecting me to come back. And all summer long, I was kind of going back and forth on whether or not I was going to go back. And I didn't commit to turning pro until the end of the summer, right before school started, which kind of put him in a bad position, I think. Um but you know, that, that was the decision I made, and, you know, and I think he could respect that, even though he did tell me he didn't think I was ready to turn. Um, <laughs> it was the right decision for me, and uh, I, I, I don't regret doing it. But uh, it, it ended a, a part of my career, uh, my tennis career at, uh, at Michigan, that uh, was very special. And so that was going to Michigan was the first big decision I made uh, in my tennis career, and then leaving after my sophomore year was the, the second biggest I made that kind of
3: continued continue to be on a really good path. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I just sent a kid, I mean, as you know, one of the kids i coach to in town, now, and Jax, you know, was number one in the country the last three years in a row, you know, one year of 16s, two years of 18s, and yeah, I mean, it, I, everyone was amazed that he never, ever considered turning pro. Um, I mean, he wants to and, you know, he's kind of the same deal of, he's like, hey, it happens after one year, great. He's not thinking about one year. He's two, three, we'll see. And it's, uh, you know, he he got a lot of advice from a lot of people that was, just turn pro now, just do this, just do that. I mean, I used, you know, guys like you, and I had him talk to Mike Russell. I actually had him talk to Jay. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, guys that went, I mean, Mike was on his way back to school, uh, you know, after his freshman year and then won six straight, you know, Futures or challengers in the summer, and then it's like, okay, I guess I'm ready, you know. But shoot, Jay went back to school after getting to the round of 16 of the U.S. Open, you know, as a as an amateur. Yeah,
2: um, I got to say, one thing you can't do is is try to copy what other players are doing. And oh, for sure, so my beer, who I used to be. He's turning pro, therefore I'm going to follow suit. You can't do that. And I don't think you can just take kind of, you know, one big win and say, oh, you know, that that's my cue. I'm, I'm ready to turn pro. You know, for me, that's, that, you know, summer 1989, I think I mentioned it. You know, I, I won a challenger. I had beaten a couple of guys who were out there, some established players. You know, I, I think I qualified for an event. I had a real good, you know, quali- almost qualified for the U.S. Open. Um, so they, there were several things that happened that summer that kind of set me up to make that decision and this wasn't one one good tournament which you know someone can get on a roll and play a good tournament i was backing up you know good results with more good results yeah no for sure i mean that uh i remember talking to mike
3: that summer we were actually supposed to live together the next year and it's i mean he won the first that's back when there were satellites it's like you know he won the first week and i remember messing with him like i guess you're turning pro and he's like what are you talking about i've done nothing you know, and then it was, I won, then he won week two and week three, and the master, you know, the end of the tournament, and then it still was like, eh, I still don't know if I've done anything, so yeah, it's, I think a lot of people maybe jumped the gun too, soon. So question on that, when, like I know your fitness was a huge part of your game, I mean that's one of the reasons actually that that kid that I was just coaching. Really needs colleges to get stronger.
2: Uh, when, when did you prioritize fitness and nutrition? Um, the two different answers there. Uh, the fitness part, you know, that was a priority even before I went to college uh, because my dad—he's the one who taught me how to play. He taught me all the way through, you know, up to college. You know, in that senior high school, and many worked with me a ton when I was on on the pro tour he was big on fitness and running but for him it wasn't real specific it wasn't sprints it was a run you know and you you just run a couple of miles that that was his thing and he just felt like you should never lose a match because you ran out of gas because that is something you can completely control by the type of training that you do so that was important to me early on and I think when I was on tour, I was certainly one of the, the more, you know, bitter players that was out there. I never worried about running out of gas. I and mean, there were definitely matches that I won where my opponent ran out of gas, maybe in the, you know, early in the fourth set when I was down two sets to one and I outlasted them. But from a nutrition standpoint, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I was never big on nutrition even when, uh, even when I was on tour. Now, I thought I, you know, kind of ate good, but, but it wasn't as, I think, as scientific as it is today. Um, and I, I always tell this story. I remember, I remember having a t- talk with Gil Reyes, Andre Agassi's trainer. Yeah. And, and, he was, and this is how detailed and specific they got down to, to his training. And he says, I, I can open up, a, it was like he had a book, like a journal. And he can look back, from the previous year and say, okay, Andre won, you know, the Aussie Open in this year, I'm going to look at what we did, what he did, when he went to sleep, how much he trained, in the three months leading into the Aussie Open, and then we're going to you know, duplicate that to a degree. And I, I that was the first time I had ever heard anyone be that detailed. I used to track my training and you know, how much you know I was doing in the gym or, or running, um, but the nutrition, honestly – you know, back then it was, you know, you know eat, eat some pasta, you know, the, the, the night before, uh, the night before, and, you know, don't go out on the court too full, you know, Um I was very routine and kind of what I ate for breakfast, you know, you can call it, you know, superstition, I always always had pancakes, I was a big pancake guy, I was actually a big pizza guy too, so even even like at, at, at Wimbledon, on my run there, I was literally having the same breakfast and the same dinner, you know, every, every single night for whatever it was, 14 nights, so. Yeah, wasn't wasn't a, a bigger deal for me, uh, and it probably should have been. Well, it seems like a lot of the guys. I mean,
3: we've had you know we've had Jay on on the podcast uh, Burger, and we had Ivan on there as well. And it's you know Jay, you know having played for him. I mean, and you know Jay well. It's like I mean, Jay was was slash is about the fitness and how hard he trains. You and you know he admitted on the podcast, and we talked about it a lot of he, he had no idea really about the fitness, you know, about sorry about the nutrition aspect of it, and he didn't know it when he was coaching us He really didn't know it that well when he was playing, and there the weren't many days that did. You know that it was just such an untapped part of of tennis and of
2: performance. Um, yeah, I, anyone who plays tennis knows that so often matches come down to a handful of points and you know, watching film is such a much bigger thing than it was, you know, back when I played. I mean, I would just put in a, you know, VHS tape and push record and, and, and kind of watch some of the top players and that was me watching film. You know, now there are guys, you know, you can literally pull up matches on on your computer and, and they're analyzing players and looking at their game and looking at their tendencies. And I've seen some of this stuff. Literally, these are, you know, it, it's almost baseball-like where, a pitcher and a batter, they know their tendencies in this pitch count. A two-zero count, this is what they're going to do. In an zero-two 2 count, they're going to do something a little bit different, and tennis has moved in that direction, and it's very specific, especially towards the top of the game where there's so much money and players have the ability to spend the money to to have their nutritionist, to have their, their trainer on site with them. Uh, they won't this year at the U.S. Open because you know it's just so so different with COVID nineteen and all. But uh, players are looking for that little edge, and if that's going to be a nutrition, I, I always think of know uh, that Djokovic. I mean, here's, here's a guy. I think he's gone gluten free for uh, for years. I mean, is there anyone on tour who's in better shape uh, than that guy? But it, it, it makes a difference when you can walk out onto the court and you have the confidence. The, the, the mental confidence of knowing that you can outlast your opponent, and guess what? Your opponent knows that you can outlast them as well, and that's a big plus walking out there. Yeah, no, it's, it's
3: definitely um, changed. Alex, make sure you bleep out what you mentioned power bar on the podcast. <laughs> uh, but, um,
1: it was pejorative. It was pejorative.
3: No, I know. Um, he implied that it's not compared it, to the arrow Bar
1: at all. Man. No, I know that you. That wasn't. That was obviously implied, and didn't even need to be.
3: Um, no, we have. We've had guys in you know, are top twenty, top thirty in the world reach out to us because of just they're looking for that tiny little edge, and, and just trying to maximize. I eat everything wrong right off the court, but I don't know what to eat on the court. So yeah, it is. You know, mentioning Power Bar, that's that's all we had in our in our training room at Miami when we were there. It was you could grab a banana, you could grab a Gatorade, you could grab a Power Bar, and, and that was it. And it was the the same thing for you know the 300 pound defensive lineman and the guy on the diving team or the tennis player. Like there was no specialization
2: whatsoever,
3: which was crazy. Um, and, and so, so you
2: know, to your point, I think you just said it is. When you're, when you're, whether it's, uh, you're playing in Australia in January, and it's 95 degrees, and you get out on the court, I mean, you're not bringing a bowl of pasta out there, but over the course of three, four hours, you actually have to put something in you, and it's not easy to find, you know, the, the right mix. I mean, you're, you're not going to throw down a, you know, a Snickers bar, in, you know, in the middle of a three-hour match, but you're trying to find that thing. You know, I used to bring bananas out sometimes, and literally... You know, you open up your bag and there's a smashed banana in the bottom of your bag and you're like, oh, know, what am I going to eat now? So, you know, players are always looking for that that little edge um, in nutrition, in training. Um, They're always tweaking their racket, just trying to find uh, that edge and kind of put them over the top because that's the difference in in winning and losing. That's the difference in, you know, winning tournaments and, and losing tournaments And you know, ultimately, that translates
1: into literally millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And to follow up on something you mentioned earlier, Mal, you talked about the fitness always being an important part of your, you know, of your tennis training, even dating back to your earliest days. And you know, later on in your career, you suffered from recurring knee injuries. And I said it beforehand; there might be a question that pisses you off. I feel like this is going to be the one. Um, but for you, yeah, exactly. Look again. It, <laughs> It was inevitable, but do you think it was caused due to maybe overtraining early on in your career, and do you think, had you paid better attention to maybe recovery, stretching, you know, better nutrition, you could have prolonged your career?
2: That, that I've never asked myself that question um, about, you know, was it overtraining? Mm-hmm. Um, I have, uh, the, the injury I had, I actually suffered it playing Gustavo, Kiernan, and Davis Cup in 1997. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the crazy thing about it, it was, the typical of my career was like summer 96. You know, Wimbledon and, and the Olympics, and then literally seven months later, I injured my knee playing Guga in Brazil, and that was like the beginning of the end of my career. I didn't know it at the time when I when I injured my knee and, and had surgery. But um, it was the beginning of the end. One of the things I've always thought, and of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. But you're doing in the moment, you're doing what you think you need to do to succeed. But looking back on my career, I would take more time off. Cause I was the guy who, who literally would not take time off. Um, if I wasn't hitting tennis balls, I was going to do some level of training. And you know, I, interestingly, my wife told me this once. She's like. You know, if you take a few days off, you're not going to forget how to hit a tennis ball. <laughs> but I literally never kind of looked at it that way. I was just like, no, I. this is what I do. I play tennis for a living. It's a Monday. It's a Thursday. Whatever. I need to go hit some tennis balls or I need to train. And I and I would just be smarter about about my training. But in the moment, I felt like that's what I needed to do to, to uh, succeed. So, you know, but it worked for me, you know. Um, it's hard to... To change when what you're doing is actually working and you're winning matches and winning tournaments, and you're you're doing well. So you continue that. So there was nothing at the, at the time that was really going to make me change. But certainly once I, once I had injury and you know couldn't play as much and couldn't train as much, I had to get a little bit smarter. And uh, and unfortunately, it led, one surgery led to a second surgery, which then led to uh, retirement in 1999. So thanks, thanks
3: for bringing that up. <laughs> So he asked. Uh, I think he asked Berger the same question about it, about the knees, and then the, the whole interview went, went downhill after that. Too. Um, but uh, no, I'll switch topics a little bit. I mean, obviously, something that's you know the you know I've I've tried to support, and I know we'll shoot my parents as well. I like, you know, talk a bit about the uh, the foundation. I mean, obviously, that's been a passion for a long time now. I think it's something everyone listening would like to hear about.
2: No, I, I appreciate you. Uh, you saying that, and uh, it's the Mount Washington Youth Foundation. We've been here in Jacksonville, Florida, for 24 years, believe it or not. And uh, I started the organization when I was on tour, and it was back then. It was just a we way to expose kids to the sport of tennis, and then it's grown into you know a, a tennis and life skills and education program. You know, for a couple hundred kids after school, and it's really just a way to to keep young people on track, you know, from kindergarten all the way through high school, and, and then we have students who are in college that we're helping, and then after college, we assist them, you know, in different ways that we can, but, you know, Mark, you've been you've been a big fan of ours, and you've helped us in multiple ways. Um, your parents, and so, I mean, literally so many people here in Jacksonville have supported us for years and years and years to, to help us get where we are, um, so it's no accident that we're having the, the success that we're having, and I, I think people... Kind of see the results, and they and they want to they want to support something that is showing results. And um, I, I will say, you know, we had a lot of support in our most recent campaign. Uh, just last month, we opened our you call it Club 904. Our students named it. We uh, went on a big capital campaign at the beginning of 2018 to raise funds to build a team center, and we just got a certificate of occupancy last month. And uh, so, you know, COVID-19 has thrown a bit of a wrench into our programs for the upcoming school year. So we're gonna, you know, you know uh, come back on our, on the numbers of kids that we're gonna serve. We have to just through, you know, with social distancing. But we're taking a lot lot of measures to keep our, our kids safe. But over the years, you know, we have impacted over 25,000 kids in some capacity with the foundation. And my goal is to, is longevity. My goal is to, uh, you know, long after I'm gone. To have the foundation uh, continuing its programs and really honoring honoring what you have done for my foundation, what your parents have done, and hundreds of other people here in Jacksonville and around the country, and literally around the world, um, honoring you know their commitment and belief in what we're doing. Um, years from now, they're going to be able to look back and say, "Wow, that program is still going." And you know, we're 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 to the point right now where we're um, we're on the next generation of kids, you know, Mark, you know, Mark Atkinson, our, our director of tennis, he is a student in the foundation, was a student in the foundation. Now he's our director of tennis and now he's married with his own kid. And, you know, we do have some second generation kids in the foundation right now. So at some point we're going to have third and fourth generation kids. Um, And and that's going to be pretty cool. I won't be here to witness that part of it, but that's going to be
1: pretty cool. Yeah, no, that, that's so awesome to hear. And again, uh, for any of our listeners who are listening to this who want to get involved, how can they do so?
2: They can go to our website, malwashington.com, M-A-L-WASHINGTON.COM, and you can learn learn about what we're doing and how, how you might get involved. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so our lifeblood is the funds that we're able to raise. Um, and I, and I, tell people just so you know, when you donate a dollar, it goes into the same account that my donated dollar goes into. I also, people ask that often, oh, do you know, do you, what do you do with your foundation? Do you support it? Um, I support my, me and my wife support the foundation every single year. Uh, my role has just changed over the years. Um, now it's more about, um, strategically setting the foundation on, on a solid footing so we can be sustainable for decades to come. whereas... You know, 24 years ago, um, it was about, you know, I want to get onto the tennis court with some kids and teach them a forehand. And so my role has changed, but the impact of the foundation has continued to grow. And and, uh, I I tell people, if uh, if you donate a dollar, the least I can do is take you on a tour of my youth foundation and let you see what we're doing. So that's one of the things I do, you know, literally, you know, a couple hundred times a year. Taking people on tours of the foundation, our, our deep center, and now our team center right across the street uh, to let them see what we're doing and figuring out how we can get people involved and engaged and use their expertise to, to help out our students. Mm-hmm.
1: No, again, that is so awesome to see. So please, for all of our listeners, again. Go check that out. And it's so admirable. You don't need me to tell you that. So, congratulations to you for all of the work that you've done. Yeah. All right. I have a couple of fun ones here down the home stretch that go a couple of different directions. I'm not going to lie. You told me beforehand, and I'm a man who listens. You said, you know, be different, keep it interesting. I don't want to hear the same questions I've always heard. This one you've heard numerous times. So, just quick 1996 Wimbledon rapid fire. Better moment for you, coming back from 1-5 down against Todd Martin, or the fact that someone was actually streaking during one of your matches?
2: <laughs> no, the, uh, the, the, the streaker kind of put me off my game. Coming back to the semifinal for, uh, uh, from 5-1 down against Todd was uh, one of the probably top two or three highlights of my career.
1: Had you played him a couple of times growing up? Because he was a fellow Michigander.
2: Yeah, I, uh, not really growing up, but I played him. He beat me in college, um, which ticks me off to this day. And uh, you know, one of my best shots was with a serve, with my serve. And I, I remember I, on match point up, I kicked serve and volleyed out to his backhand side on the ad court. And then I didn't—I I kind of forgot that he was six six. So, so a, shot, a serve that would have kicked up over someone's head, uh, someone else's head it was like right in his wheelhouse. And he had a shot up the line, and he eventually won the match. So. But but then, you know,
1: when he brings that up, I just tell him, well, I I got the big one in 96. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that counts for sure. And, you know, this, again, to lead into that, rather than ask about your Wimbledon run, I'll ask this. You have played some incredible matches in your life. Regardless of if it was a win or a loss, if you could go back in time and replay any one match from your playing career, which would it be? Oh, Wimbledon. No. Wimbledon final, 1996.
2: Uh, you know, it was the biggest, biggest single moment of my career, and you know, to lose in the biggest single moment of your career is, is very disappointing. But with that said, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a dream come true to be one of the last two men standing on the final day of Wimbledon. Yeah. No. I want
1: so, to... so again, so again, you, I mean, you, you brought up my, my whole knee injury, and then you brought up uh, you know, one of the saddest <laughs> moments of my career. To Richard you know, I, I appreciate that as well. Thank well you. I will say I prefaced it by bringing up the Martin result. So, you know, a little build-up there. A little butter for that so, burnt toast. Yeah,
2: you know, that, you, know, you got to build the athlete up and not, <laughs> not...
1: <laughs> yeah, No, definitely. Sorry, Mark. I didn't mean to cut you off.
3: Oh, no, I was going to say, you got to remember, though, at least now, I mean, you, you have to see Todd almost every day after that, both living here, so... You didn't have to see Crichek that much.
2: No, but but here's the here's the funny thing about it. Let, well, I'll tell you two things. One, for a long time, literally for years, I mean, I was never going to bring up the five one to Todd. Okay, um, he was a good friend, but I was never going to bring it up. And then one day we were actually playing golf, and he made a comment about it. And that literally like years later, that like broke the ice, and then I could give give him crap about losing losing. The I, I literally remember we were playing golf later that round, and uh, he had a putt, and I was like, hey, what's that putt right there, about five foot one inch or something? <laughs> and, he, and he misses the putt, of course. I'm, like, I'm, um, pretty, I'm pretty certain I brought it up from the coach's box when he was playing
3: Mike Russell at the U.S. Open one year, so it's it's okay. It, you, it,
2: you brought it up from the coach's box.
3: Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's probably not acceptable. But we you know we we laughed we laughed about it. You know, seven years later.
2: So yeah, I agree. That that's probably not not that acceptable. But I was going to say something else, and I can't remember what I was going to say. What was your Alex,
1: What was your question? Or, no, my question. If you report? could, what I was, was going to say. Happen? So you could replay any match, you would pick that Wimbledon final simply because of the grandeur of the moment.
2: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah you know the, the Wimbledon. You know, I, I often say, you know, that one court, every great player has walked onto that court, you know, on the final day of Wimbledon. And uh, it, was, it was very special walking onto that court. And you, you know what the crazy thing is? I never played Wimbledon again. Uh, because that was in 96. I injured my knee in 97 and didn't play again. Um, had a surgery in '97. Had another surgery in '98. And so I never played Wimbledon again
1: after that. Which kind of, which kind of sucks. <laughs> no, I can imagine. I will say to go full circle. Do you remember who you beat in that Wimbledon '96 fourth round? fourth round was it uh well, he, he might have been he might have been a quarter final uh-huh. um, I, I played Paul, Paul Harhus there there it is full circle Paul Harhus fourth round yep straight set yeah. ring for you uh, so again, doing, doing what Ed Nagel cannot. Um, no, again, all of these questions <laughs> leading into one another. You know, I talk about Todd. Certainly, you played him quite a bit during your career. Who was your biggest rival in terms of opponents? Maybe just for you. Maybe it was a mental thing or just matchup that you was most brutal for you to face. Well, it
2: wasn't really a rival because a rival you have to win some of them, <laughs> um, and I, I never won against Ambrose. That kind of you know, so, but he was like he was the guy who kind of. You know, beat me over and over again. You know, there, there was this time I was giving a talk to some kids, and they asked me that exact same question, and I said, "Yeah, you know, I was zero six against Sampras. And this kid literally raises his hand. And he's like, "Actually, I looked it up. You're zero seven against him. i was like, hey, "Who are you?" <laughs> I said, That's, uh, you know, so, you know, Sam, I was just pitching. Sam had a lot of pitchers out on tour, just people that he would just beat up on. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the, the mental challenge of playing Michael Chang because you, you, you knew he was never going to give up. There are some players you could count on, you know, throwing in the towel a break. Um, Michael Chang, literally until you were shaking hands, you, you could never, like, relax. And,
1: and think I got this, and that's what I enjoyed about playing Chain. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I mean, that's—I uh, imagine physically too—that became a battle as well.
2: Uh, he was well because he was—he was, he was going to make you work. Yeah, you know, he wasn't going to make it easy on you, and he was very one—he was a, a, a talented player, but mentally he was a very smart, strategic player. He wasn't going to overpower you like some guy but he can handle you know, your pace and your power and kind of throw, throw whatever back at you. So, but Michael
1: Chang was a, was a lot of fun to play, though. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um, all right, we're going to keep rocking and rolling here. Again, I've got some fun questions for you. I, I don't think there's anyone who follows Michigan tennis as closely as I do, and there have been a lot of great teams. I still argue that 88 team, the one that came in third, lost to LSU, was the best team in Michigan history from a roster talent standpoint. Where does that LSU rank match rank? I know I think that was when you guys you and Ed lost in doubles. Might have been your first loss on the year.
2: Um, we lost that match five four to LSU. Um, I
1: think
2: it was five four. Yeah. No, no, no. Actually, five three maybe. I don't think we lost that doubles. Okay. I don't I don't think we lost that doubles. We did lose to uh, LSU. That was that was a that was a heartbreaker because. Um, Coach had, had never won a national title. He won literally in his career. I think he won like 27 Big Ten titles, mm-hmm. and he never won a national. He had never been to a final. And that team that we, you know, that he compiled was one of the best in the country. And we we couldn't get over we couldn't get over that hump. Um, we just lost to a honestly. We just lost to a better team. But uh, that that was one of the. Uh, My freshman year, even though I had a great sophomore year individually, my freshman year was my best time in Michigan because we had so much success as a
1: team. Mm -hmm. For sure, which brings me to the question I've set up this entire podcast to ask. 1988 Big Ten Championships in Minnesota. Uh, I have heard the post-match celebrations were uh, pretty enjoyable. Is that true or false? Oh,
2: the post-match celebrations were very enjoyable. At least the ones that I can remember.
1: <laughs> I I was going to say the word on the street is there was an uh, there was a Denny's involved, and we can leave that there.
2: Yeah, there, there, there was a Denny's, and you mean okay? If you want like the story, don't go to Nago, Okay, <laughs> don't go to him. He'll tell you his version, and then I'll tell you what actually happened. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a, a late night, you know, Denny's, you know, eating event. Uh, that that occurred and then you know much of it was just kind of a fog after that but it was a, it was a great time because we did win uh, the Big Ten championship and um I, I just you know celebrated a little more than most
1: <laughs> I know you gotta enjoy those two years you're, you're in college certainly that's something Mark can relate to so
2: I don't I, I, I do care. Mark never went out now, now that that is the lie of the century right there <laughs> um <laughs> But but, now, mind you, when when I, uh, you know, at that Big Ten Championship, you know who I was with. I was with Nagel. Okay. Anything that that kind of remotely went awry for me at the University of Michigan, just look around and see where's Ed. Because Ed would have been there a part
1: of it. (laughs) I feel like he must have even back then, Mal, try Bud Light. Like, all of the lines. They were all the same <laughs> back then. Because uh, it's the same. You know, Matt, Ed, and I, Ed
2: and I hung out a, uh, a lot by, uh, uh, when we were there together my freshman year. Mm-hmm.
1: I had heard, and again, I think this is a true detail, that the champagne bottles were in the tennis bags, ready to pop during the Big Ten championships. Um, Was
2: it champagne? I thought it was something a little stronger
1: than oh, that. I was going to say a little cheaper <laughs> than that, but sure.
2: <laughs> I, I, I kind of remember there was... There was something like a, something that was ninety proof or something. I, I can't remember what it was. But um, you know, we went honestly. We went into it with a, with a lot of confidence. Not, you know, not to be arrogant or, or too cocky, but but I I was having a really good tournament. Um, Ed and I together at doubles were having a really good tournament, um, and we were we were just a really stacked team. So we had so much confidence um, going into. Uh, the Big Ten Championship and, and winning it on the road was uh, was pretty cool.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I imagine, and again, that has to be a time. I we could do, we'll save. I'm going to call you separately, and we'll do an hour on College Ed Nagel because I have questions. Believe me, I've seen the faux <laughs> mullet. The mullet. Well, how did you not say Ed? Ed, I'm not playing with you until you cut that.
2: No, it was not, that was a part of his uh, his appeal. I think that that mullet. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. That was, you ever talk to anyone else who like played against Ed? Anyone ever talk about like how tight he called the line? <laughs> Did you ever hear
1: that? No, tell me more, please.
2: Oh my god. <laughs> I mean there would be times where you know, like there'd be a bunch of us like in the stands, you know, maybe our match is over, or something like that, and we're waiting for Nagel to like finish. And we're, we're like sitting behind the court and we're like looking right down the sideline on a serve. And uh, he, he, he like put that finger out. Oh, no, 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 that, that just missed. And we're like, holy crap. Did he just call that out? Oh, yeah. Ed could get a little, you know, a little tight
1: on the call. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny to hear him say that now because, I mean, look, the Edisms, again, I could do these for. Did he give you the speech? There are three things you never do. You never spit into the wind, you never tug on Superman's cape, and you never. Never lob Mal Washington when he's at the net. Um, you know those are those are the things I, I hear for years on end. Um, no, I, I, don't,
2: I don't remember that, but uh, that, that was my. I mean, you know, my overhead. That was uh, good luck if he gave me an overhead. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of confidence in, in that shot, and uh, you know, and there were there were literally times you know, where a lot of would go up. Ed and I both at the net, and it'd kind of be like in the middle of the court, and he would literally be trying to call me off of a shot. I'm like, dude, seriously? You're trying to call me off? I got this. Just, just, just duck. Just duck. Get out of the way. And then he, then he gives you this look like, "Now, oh, what are you doing? That was my shot. I was like, dude, it's my overhead. I'm right there. I have the
1: better overhead. I have the best overhead on the key. But, I'm texting him now. He said, quote, I called the lines the way I saw them. That's, uh. <laughs> I think... Oh, oh he saw him,
2: and he saw them close, too. <laughs>
1: That is so funny. Well, again, Mel, we're so appreciative for your time. My last question for you, and then we'll let you go because, again, uh, you know, we don't want to keep you too long. Uh, with this year's U.S. Open, obviously these circumstances are unlike anything any player could have anticipated. Put yourself in these players' shoes, being in this bubble for three weeks, these environments, these conditions. How do you think that would affect your preparation and ultimately your performance at an event like the U.S. Open?
2: The toughest thing, you know, once you leave the site, you know, you're usually you're kind of in your own world and maybe you can grab a bike and you're just hanging out in your hotel. Um, I really question if they're going to be able to keep these players in the bubble. Players will be players. We've seen it in other sports already, and they just kind of do their own thing sometimes. Um, I question that, how well that is going to work. But uh, I imagine one of the toughest things is going to be is when you get on site and there's no fans and you're playing. I mean, imagine playing in Arthur Ashe Stadium, the biggest stadium in the world, okay? And there's no fans there. I can't imagine just how weird that, like how visually that that would look from a player's perspective. It's going to be strange, you know, God bless them for, for putting on the tournament and, and making do, um, and so many other sports are doing the exact same thing, and I, I feel bad for the players. Um, you know, but well done to the, the USCA and the US Open for you know, developing a plan and uh, putting you know, putting the tournament on in a way that's going to be safe, uh, safe for people, safe for the players. But, geez, I, I don't think anyone in a thousand years could have imagined that kind of this is where the US Open would be. This is where Wimbledon would, would not be or. Roland Garros being played in the fall. I mean, this is we're in crazy times, and I just encourage everyone to stay safe and, and be smart about you know everything you do, everything you do, everything you do every day. Um, but it's going to be it's going to be really interesting and strange for the players. I mean, that's, that's the best way I, I can put it. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I completely agree with you there, and you know, uh, to your point, I think all of us as tennis fans, even if the tennis isn't incredible even if it's not all these players playing at their best we should all just be appreciative that we get to see any pro tennis here given everything that's going on in 2020 so uh yeah i, I certainly agree with you there it'll be interesting to see it'll certainly be weird but i think more than anything we'll just enjoy having our favorite pro players back on our tv screens and again i, I can say this full-heartedly and sincerely this is an interview i have always been looking forward to And mark texted me said hey i think mal's agreed to come on the pod on wednesday I was like, no way. I was like, that can't be true. Mal Washington. Uh, and you know, they, they both said, Yeah, it's true. So what, what do you mean, do you mean that
2: can't be true? You're like, like, what did I turn it down fifty times or something? I mean he asked one
1: time and I said yeah. uh, So if you look into your phone, I'll send you a screenshot. I say this lovingly. My buddy Ed Nagel did set us up on a blind podcast date once and I never got the response from you. It was devastating. It was devastating. <laughs> <laughs> it was devastating, huh? Yeah. Also, you're going to talk about my knees and my wimble. You throw me
2: up uh, right before we get off the air. Hey, you stood me up on a podcast six years ago. <laughs> you know what, Alan? Ed, Ed told me about you. <laughs> then, you know, maybe that's why he stood you up. I, you know what I you know what it was? Yeah. When, when Mark reached out and said, Hey, Matt, now we come on the podcast. I didn't know it was with you originally. <laughs> <laughs> and then literally, like, like five minutes or a few minutes before, he's like, "Uh, I just want to let you know, Alex's gonna be on the chair. Let's go." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all good, man. It's all good. You know what? I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I am happy to talk to you. And uh, we have uh, a mutual love for the University of Michigan, and uh, we have a great mutual friend, in, in Ed Nagel, and, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate both you guys. and yes. I Appreciate you having me on. Of course,
1: one last okay. time for our, yes. i was gonna say one last time for our listeners. Can you tell them how to get involved with the foundation?
2: Absolutely. MountWashington dot com. Go to our website. Reach out to me and my executive director on our website, MountWashington dot com, and. Uh, would love to try to figure out a way to get up and get more and more
1: people involved with in what yeah. we're doing. I yeah. appreciate you guys. Yeah, Of course, absolutely. Well, Mal, stay safe, stay healthy, and you always have a spot available on this pod. <laughs> thanks so much. You know, uh, I'll be looking forward to our next one. Yeah, okay. Take care, Mal. Right, thanks, Mal. So so well. well. Take care, guys. Yeah.
0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Mal Washington and of course a huge shout out to our friends at AeroBarmark AeroSmith for setting this one up. If you couldn't tell it was such a pleasure for me. Again, I was geeking out there. I apologize for that, but These were the stories I grew up on, and I knew Mal had thoughts on them as well. You know, I wanted to hear the real story, as Mal mentioned. I know Ed is full of crap, and so, you know, it was great to get to share some memories with Mal, and, you know, just such a candid guy, such a fun-loving, clearly such a supporter of the sport of tennis, and so it was great to get to chat with him. He knows. I was sincere when I say he is always welcomed back on the show, and again, a huge shout-out to our friends at Aerobar. Go to aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED50 to get 15% off on the only tennis-specific energy bar available in the business. Again, on tomorrow's mini-break, I will go more in-depth on what we are seeing in Prague, in Lexington this week on the WTA Tour, talk about some of the stories that have emerged from throughout the tennis world. But of course, I will tell you all one more time if you want to follow along with us in Lexington, come join us on the Tennis One app. It is free viewing experience for all of you. You can come join us, share in our experience on CrowdView Live, which again is just such a different platform than anything else for your viewing experience in the tennis world. I know all of you tennis fans will enjoy that, so please feel free to come join me. And, you know, again, we've got so much great content here on our Cracked Rackets uh, podcast and on our Cracked Rackets website as well. Be sure to check all of that out. Like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews, and Inside Out podcast as well. Shout out, as always, to the super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out the two best in the business there is no one I would rather work with shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports go to MidwestSports.com use that promo code CR15 get everything you need from a gear perspective to ensure you are having success on the tennis court but with that being said again for my wonderful co-host Mark Aerosmith our fantastic guest Malavia Washington our super producers Max Flinger, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aero Bar and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Ooh, I should also say a huge thank you to Megan Fernandez of the Indianapolis Monthly for writing a piece on Cracked Rackets. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, Megan, the the amount of textage and voicemails I've gotten uh, from my mother who's like, oh my God, you were in the paper. Um, that's not how she sounds, by the way. That's just how she sounds in my head. But yeah, I just, any anytime anyone is putting, you know, it, we're so grateful for that. So seriously, Megan, from the bottom of our hearts here at Cracked Rackets, thank you for writing that piece. If that's something you're interested in, listeners you can go check that out just a little bit about how we got started in our mindset here at cracked rackets shout out to dalton by the way as well who said some very kind things about me that i think were unwarranted but you know that man knows how to work me and he continues to do that as well so shout out to megan for the piece but with that being said for everything i just mentioned above i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say folks that's the break and we'll see you all tomorrow thanks everyone